Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I work at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined today by my colleague, Yulia Joja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and Dalibur Ruhach with the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along the line that runs from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and welcome. Today's subject is just going to be a conversation amongst the three of us about Vladimir Putin's Victory Day speech uh, yesterday. Dalibor, um, you have a joke, apparently, to talk about. Tell, tell <laughs> that sounds like a good place to start and absolutely apropos for the event. Well, I very rarely have anything substantive to contribute to, this, to these <laughs> conversations. And yesterday uh, was in many ways underwhelming, you know, the... Uh, Commander-in-Chief was puffy as expected, and tanks rolled over the Red Square. So it wasn't sort of you know surprising that the speech was just paranoid, but it was the usual sort of stuff just, just rehashed. Uh, one thing that, that caught my eye was, was that uh, I think like two seats away from Putin, there was this old uh, Russian lady, uh, a one, veteran. The one who didn't want to... Who didn't want to let go of her bag, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, this plastic bag. I mean, in Eastern Europe, we use plastic bags That's as essentially right. <laughs> handbags or, or pieces of luggage. Until they die. So, so she was uh, uh, just grasping this, this 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 plastic bag, and people are joking on Twitter uh, about how you know somebody would tell her, "Well, babushka, why are you guarding that bag so so carefully? Like you are here in the midst of." You know the the top generals and and leaders of the Russian Federation, and she says, "Well, I'm here in the midst of these you know generals and top leaders of the Russian Federation." <laughs> and the, the other thing that was that was kind of funny was was on Russian TV. Uh, there was a segment on couples separated by the war, referring to the Great Patriotic War, and the picture that they used on the background was uh, one of Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Did you make sense of that? Why Bonnie and Clyde have now been refurbished as Soviet heroes? <laughs> I suppose, you know, that's the first picture that comes up in Google search when you are looking <laughs> a sort of for 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 a handsome, uh, you know, vintage looking uh, couple. Uh, on, on a more serious note, uh, some of us had this expectation that maybe there would be a big announcement made. Hmm. yesterday uh so we didn't hear one of a general mobilization but there is some anecdotal evidence that that maybe uh something low-key small scale might be going on so so kevin rothrock tweeted this sort of snippet of information that apparently uh in uh various state-run enterprises such as moscow metro uh People are or men are summoned for health exams in order to volunteer, and are threatened with with being fired if they if they if 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 if, if, if they don't. We have no idea. I have no idea whether this is just a sort of unique occurrence, whether this is part of a, something bigger, or whether this is some sort of you know effort to to have a mobilization without calling it one. 
Uh, I think it will be useful to watch that space. Yeah, I think you're raising an important point. And I've seen anecdotal reporting of that here and there over the last few weeks, which kind of is natural, right? Um, Because we focused excessively on May 9th as as kind of a a deadline, um, but it was was more our given deadline by the West, um, whereas the Russians were often saying, not a deadline for us. And general mobilization would have very high high political costs that I don't think at this moment the the regime wants to um, wants to take and and so this what we can call covert conscription um, I've seen it working on different levels in different spaces right because there's um, there's conscription but there's also contracts people under contract according to law to Russian law you cannot send abroad but they do that anyway and now a lot of contracts are expiring so they're trying to convince them in legal and illegal ways to continue their contract so I'm convinced that in one way or another they do have a problem of mobilizing um, both the people that are qualified with some combat experience and those that are completely unqualified. Um, and uh, and we've seen those reports even from the Wagner group that they were asking, I think, recently for yeah. hundreds of thousands of people, which is not going to work, right? Maybe, Giselle, you as the military expert, I wonder if you could enlighten us on like how this works. Like if, if they were to bring in thousands of like people from the street essential reserves who haven't really had proper training in years like 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 how useful is that well uh, so the russian army could achieve even lesser standards of uh, professionalism and tactical competence <laughs> than it has already thus far achieved but i think the the sort of good luck for those potential call-ups is th- there's no way that they can equip them, train them, get them to the front, organize them. You know, you can't just, you know, go round up a bunch of men from the metro and give them guns and send them to the battlefield. You know, the old definition of insanity is uh, doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. You know, you got to wonder whether this is the moment where we finally sort of realize that this war is about more what Putin and Russia cannot do than what they say they want to do or what their ambitions are. I mean, we are so invested in this myth of Putin as, you know, the Taekwondo genius, (laughs) master strategist, et cetera, et cetera. And from the get-go, the facts have been exactly the opposite. And so you got to ask whether, you know, the, the speech was an accurate reflection of where the Russians stand. They're not capable of mobilization. They couldn't declare victory because they haven't achieved anything that could reasonably be called a victory, uh, except in sort of Russian propaganda terms. But one thing is clear from the speech is the problem is it's neither going to get bigger nor go away. 
That's um, um that's a good note. So let me run by both of you. What what are the questions from this speech politically? Um, remember we talked about it over and over again about his crazy aims at the beginning of denazification and demilitarization. And he insisted on them so much also in, in pure language around the beginning of the war. And now they were absent. It seemed like they were dropped as aims of Russia um, on the occasion on of May 9th, um, as you know, the little evil was sitting there with his blanket on on his lap, um, and uh, in and also the idea of. I was expecting, I think many of us were expecting further continuous threats of World War III and the West is the enemy. That was also dropped. So right. how There do you no, read this adjustment? No over, no, no Zs to be found anywhere, no wonder weapons. Of course, they rolled, you know. The, the weather the was spot. bad. The yeah, weather was yeah. very bad. I don't know. I mean, the skies were blue, but the weather was inconvenient for a flyover. You know? As you know, I am a complete enthusiast for Ukrainian tractor memes. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some great ones coming out of the parade yesterday, your tractor pulling burning Russian tanks down Red Square, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I will say that it gave Emmanuel Macron another... Uh, uh, opportunity to be quizzling. That's um, a very diplomatic way, Giselle, from you to put it. Um, well, you I hit the wonder, roof. <laughs> yeah. Well, did Schultz say anything? I don't. I don't really. I haven't seen anything that that he said. But you can just feel it in the air that the French and and the Germans are just dying for this to be over. And the idea that we need to save. Vladimir Putin from humiliation mm -hmm. uh, is just, it's very difficult <laughs> to tolerate. Yeah, for sure. On both sides of the Atlantic. That was to me the biggest, in the top of catastrophes around May 9th, this was the biggest one, Emmanuel Macron. I think we got to stop, start talking more about France and Germany seems to be inching in the right direction. And then the second one, which is a detail but very grotesque, where I don't know if you, you guys saw the parades or staged parades in Mariupol. It was just, I feared yes, that. It was yeah. disgusting. Um, but uh, yeah, Macron and European um, security. We need a new architecture, he said, didn't he? Uh, it's, you know, it's, that's got to be the highlight of the day for Putin, right? Well, incidentally, I was I was on a panel last week with two academics, and they basically alluded to the same thing that that we shouldn't get overly maximalist in in our support for Ukraine and in these in these and they were like you know very nice, intelligent, thoughtful people, and I like look forward to working with them in 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 the future. But I just think that's just totally wrong headed. This sort of idea that like if we humiliate them, it will be 1918 all over again. And 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 then the sort of revanchism will will sort of build up over time. I think that 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 has the history exactly backwards, right? Like it took it took the decisive defeat of 1945 to get Germany on the on the right track. And obviously, we are not going to march to Moscow. Nobody's suggesting that, but it would be helpful if this war had an unambiguous conclusion in the form of Russians just leaving Ukraine and letting the country be. Well, and isn't the war really about Ukraine principally, rather than not just Russia, but 
the West importantly, but but secondarily, why would Zelensky and the Ukrainians at this point, where at absolute worst, they've, uh, uh, you know, they've d- defended their capital, they may be in the ascendancy in the Donbass right now. It's very interesting to sort of follow what's been happening in the last couple of days. It, it's a general stalemate to be, you know, from 10,000 feet. Uh, but the gains that the Ukrainians are making seem to me much more important than the gains that the the Russians uh, are making. And of course, the long term, the medium term prospects for the Ukrainians is they begin to receive arms from the United States uh, of a more modern generation, which the Russians just cannot match. So, you know, you the Ukrainians still have a lot of things that they want back and the pendulum is is swinging in their direction you wonder what macron's thinking can possibly be other than glorifying himself and finding a role for france uh where it doesn't deserve one yeah i think it's i, I think i see where dalibor is coming from and i see the the two things connected because i see this kind of rhetoric of you can name it as you like don't humiliate the russians don't be maximalist in your um in your demands don't expect too much um it's on one side ignoring the last 20 30 years and russian revanchism vis-a-vis eastern europe and, and europe overall the fact that the russians have been waging for the hundreds of time hybrid warfare against the entire west for such a long time but it's also this inability that I see, it's not just in Western Europe, I see it in Eastern Europe partially too, this general inability of um, coming to terms with the, with the fact that Russia has no sphere of influence and shouldn't have a sphere of influence legally or geopolitically over other sovereign countries. And I think that's, Macron is young, but he's reflecting a very old thinking that we see now the Germans, I'm amazed that the German debates um, internally that it's really inching towards that. I've seen over the last few weeks um, the German method of discussing it in detail and starting to acknowledge the fact, including Scholz, by the way, um, acknowledge the fact that Germany has had a wrong policy towards Russia and Eastern Europe, that it has to prioritize Eastern Europe. The Germans, with all the pressure, are inching towards that. But on those countries that um, and publics that, um, that don't have... The the same kind of pressure. I feel like Macron is reflecting the thinking of many Europeans, unfortunately, that is still old and they just do not want to accept that we are in the 21st century and Russia cannot just invade and, and conquer and it won't be repeated over and over again, including our mistakes vis-a-vis Russia over the last two decades. Now, going throwing a, um, another thing out there, it's also a matter of how we perceive, I think, um, the future, because while in, I saw several reports of this um, from from Russia itself, while in Europe, in especially in Central and Eastern European capitals, but really across Europe, and you see that in Washington, D.C., signs of 
war and conflict, whether that's Ukrainian flags or refugees. In Moscow, you don't see any of that. There's no Z signs. They're only in the countryside. Um, people have very quickly gone back to normality. Sure, they're replanning their summer vacation, but they're confident. Many of them express that, that things will go back to normal as soon as there is a ceasefire, that private companies will put pressure on Western governments to return as soon as there is a ceasefire and that this will be just months away and so the consequence of that will be that Russians regular Moscovites and um, and in other urban areas will think well this had no no major consequences in terms of a defeat of Russia right well I think it's very hard to sort of gauge what the thinking is exactly among Russians Right, given given the opacity of the regime and 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 its oppressive nature, uh, I think it is much easier to to sort of see into the minds of Western Europeans, where uh, there is this sort of natural inkling to to just revert to our priors. Right, Europe has been safe and at peace for seventy years. We take it for granted. This feels like an aberration. We want it to go away. You know, last time he did something in Crimea, you know, it sort of went away. We don't want to think about it. I think like Macron is playing to that audience, which is not a small one. Moreover, all these energy sanctions and the energy decoupling from Russia, like it's expensive and we have you know, very high inflation rates anyway. Like it's not, you know, it's not a sort of terribly attractive political cell. We want, if you want to decarbonize, we want to decarbonize on our own schedule, not 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 because of, not because of you know Putin's uh, warmongering. So, so the hope is that like this will somehow go away and we'll some you know revert back to normal life. I think like many Europeans sort of wish for that, and and the longer this goes on, the harder it is to sort of keep that sort of political momentum going. Which is by the way why I'm so impressed by what's happening on this side of the Atlantic. I mean that sort of forty billion dollar package like dwarfs anything that the Europeans have done. Mm. And it's, I mean, it, you know, it is just massive. And uh, Plus the land and lease, right? Plus the land and lease. Uh, I, I, I feel that, like, you know, the, like the instincts of, of many people in Europe, particularly uh, has to be said in sort of, you know, European institutions uh, has been right. Uh, but, 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 but it's just, you know, those policymakers who can, like put their money where their mouth is, I think are sort of lagging behind quite far. Like behind that, you know, behind the best of rhetoric that's coming out of Europe. So I have sort of one observation and a proposition to throw out to the two of you. Yeah, I know it's great to see the administration putting forward such a large aid package. I wonder, however, whether this represents not just the high water mark, but the 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 high tide mark for for, for that. I, I think the administration wants to wanted to put a large enough package through to sustain the Ukrainians at least through the American election season this fall, and to not have to be constantly talking about Ukraine. Uh, on the campaign trail, because you know, I think for there, there's a certain 
uh, you know, media exhaustion that one can see with, uh, uh, with the subject, uh, to, you know, to, to a certain degree. Um, but the proposition I want to put out, and one of the other things that sort of I took away from the victory uh, parade was exactly what Yulia was saying is that in some ways it was a, you know, the volume was turned down, but it was the same old, same old. And I wonder whether the Russian elites are, are right, or likewise sort of trying to ride this out. And if there's a continuous supply of money through gas and oil sales, you know, that's not going to the Russian army in any way that, that one can see, either in the immediate moment or in the, any serious mobilization for a longer-term war. So it, it you know, makes me wonder whether the Russia that we've seen and sort of saw on parade yesterday is just what Russia is going to be for a while. The corruption is going to stay, uh, and that is just going to cripple their ability to, to be effective on the battlefield. You know, one of the great things about Twitter is that everything's on there, including the crazy Russian propaganda on TV, uh, helpfully translated into English uh, every night. And um, the extreme nationalists that one sees in there are calling for a mobilization of the economy. So they're asking for something that would be really hard for the Russians to do because there is a whole set of political and economic structures that are built around skimming off, um, you know, state revenues and a whole set of patronage relationships that uh, accrue that keep Putin in power. And that's got to be more important to him than effectiveness, uh, you know, in the thrust from Isium. Uh, so does that make any sense to you too? I, I think that the, the sort of key takeaway is, is really the sort of sense of, from, from yesterday, the sense of, you know, if not paralysis, then at least, you know, the, the military term is, is, is culmination, right? That sort of like, like, this is what they can do. Uh, they don't really have any other tricks in their sleeves, it seems. Like, you know, maybe they do, maybe it will be proven wrong. Maybe there'll be something in Moldova. Maybe there'll be chemical weapons. There'll probably be more atrocities. But in terms of, like, what they are able to sort of effectively do on the ground, like that, in order to sort of achieve their, their tactical strategic aims, like this is probably it, it feels. Uh, I think so, too, in terms of you're right, war culmination in conventional terms. And yeah, they still have cards up their sleeve that are cheap or can be costly politically. But but what I'm afraid of is um, the combination of two, these two things. So exhaustion on the Western side in different contexts, we, you you both alluded to it or, or pointed to it in Europe um, with with certain elites in uh, here with the media, with um, the campaign um, come uh, or the midterms coming closer. And so where I mean, this is just the third month of, of war. 
And where will we be in just three months when they will continue on a smaller scale with destruction? We will give them, uh, we will give the Ukrainians weapons to push back, but I don't know how much. We'll still have six million or more refugees on our hands that have no place to return to. So I guess the big question is three months into the war, do we have or are we able on the Western side to um, give Ukrainians the instruments to finish this war and push Russia out so that Ukrainians have something to return to? Now, this was also for Giselle, but, but Dalibor, do you want to weigh on that militarily and, and politically? I, I mean, I don't really have a very good sense of how far this 40 billion out of which 20 20 billion 20 plus is mm-hmm. is for military like how far that goes in sort of sustaining the ukrainians and we had this conversation on one of our email chains at ai between us about whether there might be a need for another package before the midterms uh i mean you know it's it's hard to to predict these things uh but but ultimately like hinges on 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 you know like 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 how 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 much real equipment that money buys and 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 how much of it will will still be needed for the Ukrainians to push the Russians out? Yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, it feels like a like a fairly substantial cushion, but then also like in the short term, like you run into all sorts of production constraints as you like deplete all the reserves that we have. Like like there isn't a sort of I understand it. There, there isn't a sort of unlimited amount of. Genesis. equipment that yeah. can be that can be sent immediately to 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 ukraine so once you sort of crank up production like it takes weeks or months to to get it online you know the the war itself is going to determine if we start transferring uh you know tanks and fighting vehicles and airplanes you know we could run through we could run through tens of billions of dollars um uh, without too much diff- and the ammunition and the support that goes with it and so on and so forth. And to some degree, the, the, the javelin phase of uh, the war is sort of winding down a little bit. I mean, the Russian ability to conduct large scale offensives is almost nil at this point. And the question will be, you know, what will the, what will the Ukrainians then do? Um, and actually, I think so. Just to, you have two sort of conflicting uh, advances going on at the moment. The Russians are trying to move south uh, from Izium to try to come in on the rear of the Ukrainian forces that are have been fighting on the line of contact in the Donbas. But there's also um, a Ukrainian offensive that's pushing outward from the Kharkiv area, which is clearly no longer just about pushing the Russians out of artillery range of the city, but is you know threatens to cut off the southward thrust uh, of the Russian army. There are also increasing reports of more senior Russian officers up to battalion command who are refusing to be, to obey orders uh, for, for these sort of piecemeal, semi-World War I over-the-top type attacks. 
it, and even if if those things play out as one can imagine, th- there's still a lot of, you know, there's uh, the land corridor in the south and so on and so forth. So the Ukrainians still have a lot of work to do and are going to need to go over into attack mode to be able to even secure the status quo as of February. And those will be very uh, expensive operations in terms of munitions and equipment and so on and so forth. And you just have to wonder whether the administration has the commitment and the will and the resources to to keep it up. Uh, one of the best things that's happened since we last spoke was that Nancy Pelosi led a congressional delegation to go see Zelensky, and she came away, uh, you know, vowing to fight on until victory. So at least the senior leaders of the Democratic Party are are seem very very committed to uh, to the Ukrainian uh, to the Ukrainian cause. And maybe the spigot will remain open. I know this is not um, the political leaders, but it was so important for hearts and minds. Jill Biden, first she showed up in Bucharest and, can I just say, completely eclipsed um, the, the first lady of Romania who had not been to see the refugees. She only went with Jill Biden. Um, and And then the meeting... Um, over the border from Slovakia in um, in in Ukraine with um, the first lady of Ukraine, Zelenska, that was just um, so good. Let me just put it that way. It was excellent on the PR side of both Ukraine and the United States and made a huge difference for, for people in Ukraine and in the region to see the real person. By the way, another amazing thing, Jill Biden, I know it's a detail, but it shifted completely and, and made the headlines everywhere, was serving um, the U.S. armed forces in, in uh, Romania. That made a huge difference. The hug with Zelenska made a huge difference. These things get underestimated, but to many people, it was really a highlight in this war of support, much more so than political statements of Jill Biden showing up unannounced on Ukrainian territory in a village. Um, I hope we will see more of that, but it really, really helps. She spent three days totally in Slovakia, including that trip to Užhorod, which is just next door in in, in, in Ukraine. And, and I think she has left a fairly big, footprint i mean it, it it meant a lot like just seeing the refugees uh and, and the sort of real human warmth like I, I tend to be fairly cynical about politicians and politicians wives mm. generally speaking and uh you know when people sort of overuse the doctor title put it in front of their name like that makes me always suspicious but 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 actually i think on this occasion she's been a huge huge asset to the U.S. foreign policy and soft, inf- soft power around the world, and and I think this this played really well in in in, in Slovakia. Well, we shouldn't end the podcast without our ritual uh, Orban splaining uh, <laughs> session. <laughs> uh, so, Dalibor, the Hungarians, uh, you know, can't. I, I can't understand what they're they're thinking. They're backing the the losing side to the hilt. It really is something to behold uh, when you, when you think about it, because because it looks like this is a hill 
he Orban is willing to die on, right? Obstinately saying no to the oil embargo uh, at the time when even the Germans are willing to go along with it. Uh, I mean, the economic reasoning behind it might be that uh, the sort of Hungarian refinery company mall uh, just just gets a much bigger slice of profits by refining Russian oil than 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 other kinds of oil. So they want these contracts to 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 continue. But but like, could that really be worth alienating literally everybody? In the EU, I think that's 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 the real question, and and I mean the sort of arguments that have been used over the past ten days or so. So, so the the talks are still ongoing, as mm. we talk on 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 Tuesday. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen was in Budapest yesterday. Uh, there should be a new proposal on the table today, mm-hmm. which might be actually being negotiated uh, right now. But but last week in in the build up to the to the European Council, uh, the 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 arguments used were just so incredibly. Just asinine, right? So, so, so Orban would say that unlike other countries that have ports, our ports have been taken away from us, so we can't <laughs> really bring the oil like on 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 on, on ships. Uh, obviously, Hungary had ports in what is now Croatia, which is also a EU member country. Uh, by the way, the Hungarian ambassador in Zagreb was 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 sort of summoned to <laughs> explain himself over those comments. So. So perfectly willing to throw like you know closest friends neighbors under the bus just for the sake of defending this relationship with Putin it's, it's just incredible I think on the upside they'll find a way around it temporarily and maybe it will be a good excuse to reform the EU not in the way that Macron wants but in a more constructive way we saw also yesterday talks about a, a significant push now to move away from consensus decisions in foreign policy for the EU um, and so that might change and what I heard the rumors are for the new package on the oil embargo is that in the end it won't be just Hungary but a couple of more smaller countries in the region um, that will ask for an exception which eventually will not be such a detriment because it will nevertheless keep the um, reduce the oil prices um, uh, with regards to Russia because of overall EU embargo the smaller countries consumption will not make a difference and so for now everybody will kind of compromise but I do think now we're getting into something else but I do think that there is something that needs to be done about Hungary in the EU and in NATO, because it cannot be that we ask ourselves every single day, thanks to Orban, the question of why are they a member of the EU and NATO? Well, since we've come to the moment where we're skirting the question of EU reform, <laughs> perhaps, we should, perhaps we should stop before we go down and then uh, endless uh, rat hole, except Delabor, unless you can uh, punctuate this discussion in a crisp way. Huh. Um, no, no I, I will just say that my my patience and willingness to compromise with Orbán's Hungary, I think, is has has has, has was is never run great over. to begin with, but is it exhausted now? <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So, uh, from me to Zell Donnelly and. Julia Joja and David Thank you so much for listening to the Eastern Front.
Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're available on Twitter if you use the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's one long word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe, rate, and review us. Like all social media, we live and die by these metrics. Thank you so much for listening to our show and goodbye for now.